This message was recorded at Vision Baptist Church in Alfreda, Georgia. During this time, Pastor Gardner answers various questions. Uh, tonight's question and answer night, I understand that Zach Elrod has full intentions of stumping me in front of everybody, and so that's not hard to do, to be blunt honest with you. But anyway, we'll take a few questions and see how far we get uh, tonight before we get around to the... <laughs> Well, that was a real hard one there. Yeah, I know that story. Uh, uh, but uh, we'll take a few questions, and if we, if we get around to preaching this message or whatever, would you share your testimony of salvation and God's leading into ministry? Um, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know what you. Th- I'll tell you my story. I'll just tell it, and you can take it as what you think. I grew up in a very, very country town. Uh, uh, and so I was a member, I uh, wasn't a member, my parents were members of Wrigley Baptist Church. The pastor's name was Carlton Flowers. Uh, he, was a, uh, he was a Marlboro man, a uh, smoking pastor, but back then it wasn't so taboo. That was 1962. Uh, I don't remember this particular part, but my dad says that uh, for weeks I went to him and said, do you want me to get saved? And he said, sit down, boy. And I would go to him and I'd say, Dad, you want me to get saved? I don't remember that for anything. But on May the 6th, 1962, I went forward and told the pastor that I knew I wanted to get saved that day. And I accepted Christ as my Savior. don't remember if they really gave me a good plan of salvation. I, was, I remember on the way out, the, the pastor's son asked me if I felt different. And I thought, you know, I was crying. So I, that was different. Uh, but uh, I didn't really fully understand uh, uh, understand all of that. I was seven years old. He preached on, uh, he preached on, um, uh, the cross on Calvary. It's a country church, uh, like very few you've seen, unless you're pretty, unless you're pretty old or you've been to some of the really good country churches. And, uh, I remember going home and asking my parents that week if I would, uh, die, if I would go to hell, if I died, since I hadn't been baptized yet. And they explained to me, even at the age of seven years old, it was May the 6th, 1962. I turned eight and on August the 21st. And they told me, uh, so I was still very young, but they told me that, no, I wouldn't. And explained it to me from the Bible. Daddy and mother explained that to me. I was baptized the next week at Mill Creek Baptist Church. A bit Mill Creek, uh, Mill Creek outside of Wrigley Baptist, just down the road a little bit. I went by there a year or two ago and actually took pictures and uh, was was very... uh, nostalgic moment for me to think about the fact that the Lord saved me. Wrigley will always have a very special place in my heart. And Brother Flowers will always have a very special place in my heart. I don't even know where he's at or what's happened to him. But the thought that God used him to let me get saved, help uh, get the gospel to me is a tremendous blessing. Uh, We moved from there to a town, uh, another town where daddy could, my dad got his GED uh, and could get a better job. And so we moved to uh, uh, we moved to a place called Trace Creek Baptist Church. Uh, it was on the creek near New Johnsonville, where the Dupont plant was, where Daddy got a job. And while I was there, we went to Royal Ambassador Camp, RA Camp, which is like Boy Scouts among the Southern Baptists. And during the week, there was a lady there named Jean Dock, and uh, she was an old, 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 old lady. She had to be fifty or sixty. And uh, but you know, when you're like eleven. You got to remember, man, a 50-year-old woman looks like she's been dead 50 years and uh, uh, when you're 11. And I could just remember, I love you, baby, but I mean, back then, I would have thought you're old. But uh, uh, so everybody would go play, and that Jean Doc gave the opportunity. Uh, she was like the resident missionary there, and you could go sit on the porch and talk to her. 
And so I went up there all the time and I'd sit on her porch and she'd tell stories from China and all of that. And, uh, on, uh, Thursday night they had, uh, the, 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 uh, bonfire and we walked out to the fire. They were carrying a cross and we were singing, I decided to follow Jesus. My cousin was there and I had a horrible case of camp stomach sickness, otherwise known as diarrhea. And, uh, and, uh, so I didn't listen hardly at all. All I could think about was I wanted badly to get back to the bathroom. And, uh, uh, when I got back to the, ba- when I got back to the dorm, my cousin was there who later became a missionary. It was in Africa and also in, uh, Mexico. And my cousin said, Austin, I was shocked that you weren't up front giving your life to be a missionary. And I said, uh, ah, Lord didn't deal with my heart. Well, he really didn't deal with my heart. But I could not get away from that. And so over the next few weeks, I prayed about it and prayed about it. And I knew I could never speak in front of people. I was uh, terrified of people. I was not exactly an exuberant, outgoing uh, person. Still am not. And uh, so um, uh, I decided that I would uh, go into medical missions and that I would be a medical missionary. So I prepared. Uh, when we got to high school. My dad uh, went to the school system because our little hick town really didn't have any kind of higher education. Reading, writing, and arithmetic was about all you got. And my dad got some other parents together, and seven of us went through high school together. They brought in college prep courses uh, because the state of Tennessee at that time required if seven uh, students needed a course that that it had to be provided. And so uh, I took... uh, I took trigonometry and all that stuff, never did do any good at it. But I mean, I took all those uh, college level courses, went to college, fully expecting to be a doctor, um, was accepted in the pre-med. And it took me about three, uh, uh, six, eight weeks maybe to realize I do not care for this. Uh, every day it was, uh, every day it was some kind of science thing going on, cutting on something. I didn't mind cutting on stuff. I'd grown up on the farm, but I, all the evenings there was Bible teaching. And so every afternoon I would find a place where they were teaching the Bible and I would either teach it or be taught. And, uh, I met a friend there, his name is Steve and the Lord really used him to totally change my life. He was a radical. He was excited. He was on fire for God. And, uh, I, uh, I decided that, uh, I, I would be a preacher, but I didn't know I was going to be a preacher. I just knew I was going to do some other kind of ministry. Didn't know how to be called to preach. And Betty and I got married. And I wanted to be in the ministry so bad. I would go to my pastor in the church. There, was no, there were no jobs available. And especially not when you look so young. I was, uh, when I was 18, I probably looked 14. And uh, uh, so when I went to the pastor and I asked him if I could have something to do, he kept putting me off. His name was Billy Kitchens. He married us. And he kept putting me off and telling me no. Uh, uh, he, that he would get back with me. That he had something for me to do. And I went week after week and I was getting very discouraged. And I went to him and I said, Brother Kitchens, if you don't have something for me to do, I'm going to go somewhere. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a business card and said, call this pastor. He wants you to be his youth pastor. And uh, I called him and that's how I got the ministry. Uh, I called the pastor up and he said, look, I don't know nothing about youth ministries. I don't know nothing about church uh, having a staff. I'm just a country preacher. But Billy Kitchen says, you're the guy to do the job. And so... Um, I went out there. In fact, I wanted to have a retreat. And I said, I'd like to have a retreat with the young people. And he looked at me and he said, we will never retreat at this church. There will be no retreats. And I said, okay, can we have a forward? And so we had a church forward and took the young people forward. Amen. And uh, so anyway, while I was there, I asked every preacher that came through how to know if he was called a preacher or not. And uh, none of them could ever answer the question. Everybody kept telling me, you'll know. 
uh, and I kept waiting for lightning bolts and I kept waiting for anvils. But all I wanted with all my heart was to preach the Bible. The most fun I ever had was when I got to teach the Bible or disciple or, 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 or do something of that nature. And so uh, one guy, Larry Worley, was a youth director and he told me, uh, another youth director, a lot, lot bigger than I had ever dreamed of being or have ever, have ever been. And he told me, if, who, why do you think you want this so bad? I said, I don't know. I said, but I just wish he'd call me. I said, I just wish he'd call me. I beg him to call me, but he won't call me. And, you know, I didn't know what that meant. I guess I was expecting a phone call and I wasn't getting one. And he said, well, if you got such a heavy desire, don't you think maybe God's dealing with you? And I said, so I will take that. And so uh, I surrendered and told the church I would be. I, I was already, they were all shocked because I went forward in the church where I had a very large youth group, the largest I've ever had. Uh, I went forward and told them that God had called me to preach and they were in shock. So that's pretty well it. And Betty and I've been married 39 years and Betty was in on all of it. When I told Betty, we were going to go to the mission field. She said, I had lied to her or not told her the truth. Maybe that's how she put it. I told her when we were getting married, I was going to be a missionary. And when I told Betty, we were going to go to, to Peru. She said, uh, you never told me this when we got married. And I said, honey, I told you it was going to be a missionary. She said, I know, but a missionary, you know, that's something different than what you're trying to do now. And I said, oh, no, it's really not. So uh, that's been the whole, I guess, the whole story that gets you up to date. Next question. On the th- of the things I spend my time on, what will last and what will not? Uh you know, I, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a, a basic Bible answer. I think to that. Would you open your Bible with me to Matthew six, uh, thirty three? We'll look at that, and then I want to look up above that in the in that same passage of Scripture. And uh, you know, the truth is that um, the truth is that the only thing that's really going to last is whatever whatever we do for Jesus. Let's start in six nineteen, maybe. Let's go to six nineteen, Micah, if you would. The Bible says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves and break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's talking about money there. But um, the only things that are really going to last are things that we do for the Lord Jesus. So I, I would say to you that, uh, that, I mean, that includes a lot of things in your life. If you're a mama and you raise your children for Jesus... You know, you are the biggest discipler in this room. You spend more time and more life on life and you train your children. If you teach them to know Jesus and you teach them about Jesus and you pray and you beg God for the day they come to know him and you raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you are doing a fantastic work that is as great or greater than any preacher. And you ought to know that every woman is, that's something that will last for all eternity. Your child will die. But if your child gets saved and your child grows in the Lord and your child is used of God, that will last for all, et- all, of, all of eternity. Uh, your prayers are going to last for all of eternity. In fact, as I could go to Revelation and pull up a verse and show you in Revelation where he had, those, he had the, their prayers and he saved those, their prayers. So he, and he saved their tears. And so, so, the, the, so the Lord knows that when we pray. What you give to get the gospel around the world, that's going to last forever. People you disciple, things that you do that are eternal. The truth is... Um, uh, everything that we have that's beautiful and new will soon not be beautiful and new. And uh, life won't be that way. We're all getting older. And so what you do as far as carrying the gospel around the world, praying, discipling, uh, we make money, but we shouldn't make, we don't make money 
for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with us enjoying money with everything. But you know, you ought to realize everything God's put in your hand. And every person in this room, you have as much an opportunity to serve God as I do. And I may be in full-time ministry. But you go out and you see more people than I do. And if you just share the gospel when you get a chance, if you just pray for those people, if you just uh, uh, let them know something about the Lord Jesus, if you use your influence, you're doing something that looks that lasts for eternity. And it doesn't look that way to you because you're you know, we're geared in America. We're geared for how much money do I have in the bank? That's how we keep score. We keep score by how much money we have or how many toys we bought. But in Christianity, we, the bad thing is we don't get to keep score. Just keep sowing. So what lasts or what's good? Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things uh, will be added. So we seek him first. We put him first. We honor him uh, so that, uh, so that it, it, it makes a difference. And then I wanted to show you, what, where was it? Chapter 4 we went through. Second uh, Corinthians chapter four. We went through this just recently. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And I would just remind you and challenge you: that what what counts? What counts? Your body's dying. Your stuff's wearing out. You're going to have to keep buying new stuff. But whatever you, what you do for God is what counts. So I challenge you to live for something that lasts. If I were in Peru dealing with a young person in Peru, one of the young men came up to me and, and he was talking about how he wanted to be an officer in the military. And there's nothing wrong with being an officer in the military. And I said, well, why do you want to be an officer in the military? And uh, he said, well, I just think, you know, I can have a good, comfortable life. I don't have to be poor anymore. I don't have to live like I've had to live all my life. And he said, I could have a house like that. And, I, you know, and here, here's the whole deal. We live, that's our dream. That's our dream. I lived with an outhouse. I love an indoor bathroom. People ask me, do you want to go back to the way it was? Absolutely not. I, if I visit, I want an indoor bathroom. Amen. And when I go visit, I want an indoor bathroom. But, but you know, it's so easy to look at things. And so I challenge you, get out, man, you teach a little Sunday school class, and that looks like such a nothing. That looks like such a nothing. And and on your job resume, it probably doesn't amount to anything, but it does more for the cause of Christ than anything. You're teaching those kids about Jesus. Uh, I have never, ever had a large ministry. I've never been a big preacher. But let me tell you something. I got saved in that little country church with a bunch of bumpkins. That would be embarrassed to come to church here. But they taught me about Jesus. They taught me about Jesus. They taught me the books of the Bible. They taught me the Bible verses. And they showed me things about Jesus. And, and uh, I mean, it was not the kind of church. I mean, it just wouldn't have been anything that you would have imagined as being good. But they taught me about Jesus. That's what lasts. I mean, if I was you, I'd find every place I could to get involved in that. Could I stop and say this? Every one of you. You know, uh, three of our men will go to the mission field uh, tomorrow for a a short visit. Brother John and Chuck and uh, Ben are leaving tomorrow. Trent and I are leaving tomorrow. You know, you could get involved with a missionary uh, and and, uh, you could go participate in that. Get a heart for the world. That's the kind of stuff that lasts. Next question. If I become offended, to what extent is it better for me to grow in my own life and get over it instead of confronting my brother or sister in Christ? 
Well, I, uh, I, I think that uh, it depends on what you're talking about. So let's, uh, Matthew 18 was written for brothers that, that get offended in the church. In Matthew chapter 18, it says, if you're, if you're offended, you can go to your brother and you can talk to him about what's, what's wrong, what the fault is. But let me, let's back up. I think whoever wrote the question, you wrote the question very well. Let's back up just a second. Did you know that most of the time when I get hurt, it's my pride that gets hurt and it's really not such an issue, except I'm very prideful. And, buddy, I can let the least little things bother me. And sometimes I think that the Lord allows those things to happen to goad me and to show me where I need to change and to show me where I need to mature. I'll take you to Matthew 18 in just a minute. But, uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll read those verses with you quickly. But just, just l- listen to this. I think that the majority of the time I need to just suck it up. I need to learn to forgive. I need to learn to love. And loving... Loving's tough work. It's hard work uh, to forgive and to love somebody when, when they when they do you wrong. Uh, but the truth is, uh, the truth is that uh, too much confronting goes on, or too much running goes on. It's always one of those two. Uh, not a lot of forgiving and loving in spite of. Most people will either confront or they'll run. I think most people run, and that's a real crime. You know, if, if, if somebody hurts your feelings, you say, well, I'm leaving this church because somebody hurt my feelings. Well, you certainly didn't do the right thing. You certainly didn't do the right thing. First off, no matter where you go, somebody's going to hurt your feelings. I mean, it's just going to be impossible not to get your feelings hurt. Can you say amen right there? I grew up in a home where we never lived anywhere because my parents always moved. And they didn't get along with people. They didn't get along with people. So we'd stay here three years, and then we'd move over here three years, and we'd have a set of friends here. And uh, we, my, my, my brother, has, he says, I have no roots. You can't, no matter where you go, the people in the next county won't like you any better than people like you in this county. So maybe you ought to grow up. Don't run. Second, if you have to confront, confront lovingly. Look at Matthew chapter 18 with me, if you would. Matthew 18. And uh, Micah, you make me... Speed up enough to get all these questions covered. Matthew chapter 18, if you would. And let's go to verse 15. Verse 15, it says, uh, More, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Verse 16, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, Tell it to the church, but if he neglect here the church, uh, let, let it be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, I want you to watch this a second. You realize what's going on here? It is a situation where if somebody has committed a trespass against you, that another brother would recognize that he committed a trespass. Suppose I went over here and I said, Brother Morgan, would you be willing to go with me? Uh, Ed... Ed took an ink pen off my, pen, my desk without asking. And I need you to go with me and help me straighten out Ed on that. And if Steve were to look at me and say, come on, man, get a laugh. Is that all that happened? Come on, tell me the story. You realize that what's going on in this story is they committed a trespass against you and you went to them. And sometimes the trespasses, I mean, just to be honest, they weren't really trespasses. They weren't really something big enough to get in them involved about it was really something you should have just turned the other cheek with. So I say, Steve, would you go? Steve looks all this over an ink pen. How much did the ink pen cost? It was a big. 
I don't know what they cost nowadays. It used to cost 19 cents, but they probably cost what? What's a big ink pen cost? It don't cost much. And so Steve looks and says, well, did you ask him for the ink pen back? Yeah, I did. And he said he didn't take it. So, you know, so I, I want to take a brother or two with me. And they look at me and say, come on, Austin. That's a little over the top. So don't you understand this trespass? Here's a real trespass. How could you bring it in front of the church and say, Ed, now I got everybody here witnessing. You took my ink pen. And it says, I didn't take your ink pen. And I say, and I don't have any witnesses. The whole church is going to end up saying, Austin, sit down and shut up. So, you know, really, this is supposed to be a pretty strong thing. So unless it's strong enough to get to this, I'd forgive it. And you're going to get your feelings hurt. You're going to get your feelings hurt. Uh, I was in Peru and I, I would, uh, you know, I mean, I loved Peru and I loved preaching there and I loved doing all the ministry there. And, and, uh, when you speak another language, you uh, may speak it well enough for people to understand you, but you probably have an accent. And you've seen that with everybody you know that speaks another language. Unless they were kids when they learned it. And I remember walking out of Hunter Church one night, and I got out to my car. By this time now, you got to understand that my ministry was pretty large. I had all kinds of churches everywhere. And uh, the Hunter Church was a large church. We had a Christian school. We had a Bible college. We had a whole lot of stuff going on. And I got out to my car and these eight or nine-year-old kids were standing there talking. And they were going, they were mocking me. They were mocking the way I talk. And so when I got out there to them, they looked at me and they said, Why not stay and man, I, I mean, it just flew all over me. And I said, look, you little punk in Spanish. I said, look, you little punk. Can you talk English? And they said, no, sir. I said, well, shut up. <laughs> you see, honestly, can you imagine me going in and asking the brothers of the church to help me correct those kids? That's a foolish thing. I, it was my pride that got hit hard. So, turn the other cheek. Grow up a little bit. Next question, sir. Why can't divorced men become deacons? Man, they're going to get rougher and rougher by the night. We better hurry on. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll show you why uh, that I don't believe they can have the office of a deacon. First of all, let me say this. They can be a deacon without the title. The, the, the word deacon is a, all it means is servant. And um, there are a whole lot of qualifications there in the list. And... Uh, I think that I think it's the same thing with pastors. And so look, just look at it with me, if you would. In First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we're talking about the bishop or the pastor or the elder of the church. It says he must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now skip down to verse um, 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to uh, much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. Um, even so must their wives be grave. And verse 12, they're husbands of one wife. Two things I'd say to you about deacons. First off, any real deacon wouldn't want to be fighting about anything. A real deacon's a servant. And his attitude wouldn't be, uh, bless God, I don't like the way you're mistreating me. It would be, I'm a servant, and servants are meant to be mistreated. So he would just accept them. He would just accept it, and we're all supposed to be like that. But there are two things that, 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 that are very strong, I think, in the Bible here, First Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, about the pastor and the deacon. And, and there are a whole lot of qualifications. And one of them is that he has his home under control, that he has his home. So it wouldn't be just not be divorced. It would be that he has his wife and children loving Jesus. If I can't as a pastor 
I would never sit in a church under a pastor who couldn't get his wife to come to church. Because if anybody knows if I'm real, it's Betty. And if Betty doesn't believe I'm real enough to believe what I preach and teach, if my children won't listen to it and follow it when they're, when they're living in my home, then it, I think it disqualifies me. So it really comes down to this. You're setting up some people in the church with offices that become models, model offices. And so that's the main reason. I didn't make that. I didn't write that. He did. Some of you might say, well, it just means not living with more than one woman. And I think that's a possibility. You could easily come up to me and say, well, it just means that he can't have multiple wives. Uh, uh, but I really, you know, I, I think it really means basically a one-woman man. A one-woman man. So if he had a porn problem, I still don't think he could be a deacon. If he had a lust problem or a fornicating problem or an adultery problem or a divorce problem or another wife problem, he still wouldn't be in a position to be a deacon. And I would base it all on 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And those aren't the only qualifications. There's a whole lot more there that make it uh, pretty rough. And the big thing would be this. Just let me say that that, that, uh, good people have been divorced. Good people have been divorced, and I love you, and you are not out. And God loves you, and he doesn't hold that against you. Uh, 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 he, there's only two things I know of that, uh, that, that he's put any limitation on, and that'd be pastoring a deacon, and there's tons of other things you can be involved in. And uh, being a, uh, just those two things that the Bible is pretty specific about, and that's why I wouldn't have a deacon that would be divorced and remarried. Could you explain more about Christmas on the north side? What is its purpose? Um, well, I would, I'm going to be very brief. Aren't there like nine questions? Didn't somebody tell me? Ten questions. So here's the main thing. We need an excuse to invite people to church to get the gospel to them. And so what happens is, you know, you could invite them every Sunday. You could say, man, I want you to come this Sunday. But when you have something special, people will be like, oh, so you're doing something really special. Yeah, we're going to do something really special. And so it gives you an excuse to invite people to come to here, to come to the church and get to know the church. Two or three things. Number one, if they're, if they're lost, if they're lost, they might not want to come to church. So that, that gets them in here for, for, for another reason. Uh, maybe they are, maybe they're a little put off by being a, a warehouse, but if you get them in here and they see what it's like and they meet you, they'll come back. So it's really an evangelistic purpose. Get them here to hear the gospel. And so it's something that's pretty easy to put together that might draw some people to come to church. Okay. <laughs> um, the Bible says when Christ comes back to earth, he will be riding a white horse and followed by armies riding white horses. Since animals don't have souls and go to heaven or hell, are these horses literal? If so, where do they come from? Is that Zach Elrod's question? (laughs) All right. uh, Let me tell you something. There will be horses in heaven and they will be white and uh, we will ride them. And where do they come from? I don't know. But a guy who can make a world in six days can do anything he wants to do. Uh, I doubt it's your horse resurrected. Uh, I doubt it's your horse resurrected. Uh, the, uh, they don't have souls and they don't go to heaven or hell, but they'll be there whenever he needs them to be there. And so that's the next question. <laughs> we're going we're to sing a song and take a break. What is the appropriate, what is the appropriate biblical response to a situation in which a person you have been sharing Jesus with for a long time simply rejects the gift of salvation and the message of Jesus Christ? Uh, I would say to you that if you've been sharing the gospel with somebody and this, and they continually reject Jesus, you should love them and be kind to them and on occasion, bring it up, but don't be obnoxious and just back off. 
pray. Watch this. There's only one way people really get saved. It's not how you're holding your mouth. And it's not the way you've been talking. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. So beg God, pray to God to work in their life. Share the gospel the best way you can and wait on God to work. It's, uh, that's really hard. Because a lot of us come out of, of uh, independent Baptist backgrounds where you're supposed to be able to lead somebody to Christ in 20 minutes or less. And everybody's supposed to pray the prayer and everybody's supposed to get saved. But that's just simply not true. The reason you're saved and the reason you're here like you are tonight is the God of heaven did a work in your life. And he convicted you and he showed you your sin. And he brought you to a place that you recognized that you needed to be saved. And so if you're sharing the gospel and they're continually rejecting, I'd still be their friend. I'd still love them and I'd bring it up whenever I got the chance. But to be blunt honest, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm moving on about missionaries. I'm moving on. In every part of my life, I'm going to find people that are ready to hear and responsive. Watch this. Paul walked through entire cities and evidently didn't say a word there. Jesus walked through places and didn't even speak. It's not like everybody everywhere they went. And so you can move on to the next person and continue loving that person, but witness to somebody else. I always look for who's responsive. Everybody I meet, I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to say things and I'm going to invite them and I'm going to uh, invite them to church or I'm going to do stuff like that. But when they, if they're not interested, that's fine. It is funny. One, one story about that. There was a guy named Julio Marquina that our church supports as a missionary. And Julio had been witnessed to and, uh, and Julio had been dealt with about the gospel and Julio had had many opportunities to hear about Jesus and he was a very hard case. And in Peru, you always have the door wide open and you would, we never had a building anywhere near this big. And so uh, the, the, there was a major avenue outside of our church door, probably 15 feet from the door of the church. And you have to leave the doors open because if the door is not open, it means you don't want people to come in. So the door is standing wide open. And Julio made this thing, uh, that this, uh, it was, it's, like a, it's like the kind of thing that mechanics uh, roll up under cars to work on the, the, the uh under a car so they would make those out of ball bearings and then they they made all kind of ungodly noise on the road and so he would go outside our church and he would wait till church started and get his friends and ride them up and down outside the church making all the noise he could throw rocks at the windows make any kind of noise he could to disturb us people tried to talk to him he wouldn't listen uh he was hard-headed and then one day he got saved and he's a missionary in venezuela today Somewhere in there, God stepped in and did a work. It's God. Always give God the glory for it. One more question. We're going to sing a song with Ed. What are good parenting books besides the Bible? I quit doing that a long time ago. Uh, Trip, a guy named Trip. Uh, is it Paul Trip? Somebody help me. Uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. I, I think that's a good book. Um, get with uh, get with uh, Trent and get with Mark Coffey. Uh, uh, Robert, I don't know if he's been dealing with any of those books. Get with some of those guys. Uh, I don't really teach those courses and I, I don't really read books about parenting much anymore. We got one more question. That's it. Well, glory to God, I'll still preach then. Uh, I thought Robert was going to get my outline and everything. Uh, 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 I think that Paul, uh, I think Paul Tripp's book's probably one of the best let me just say this to you. Um, be careful with every book and just know it's a book. Um, Dr. Spock came out when I was a kid. 
told everybody to quit spanking their children, and that's become the norm today. You all follow that to the T. Just about it's like you're not supposed to discipline your child. Uh, uh, so, there, I mean, the pendulum swings from one side to the other side. And uh, I would just say to you that uh, I don't know what good books to suggest to you, but I would be very careful to stick more, mostly in the Bible and read the Bible. And here's the thing. Love, 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 love your children. And keep the doors and the lines of communication open with your kids as best you possibly can. And uh, be very careful. Don't try to raise them the same way. Don't try to raise them the same way. They're not the same. Uh, you've got four kids. I had four kids. Betty and I had four kids. They're not the same. They all have different personalities. Uh, you've got uh, obstinate Stephanie who wouldn't listen to anybody. Stubborn Stephanie who wouldn't listen to anybody. You have uh, Joy who caused us all, uh, all kinds of heartache and problems but is now doing, doing wonderful. You have David who is, was a clown the day he was born and is still a clown till today. And you have Chris who was so tenderhearted. Uh, but extremely, uh, extremely diligent and hardworking is that they're just all different. And I don't think you can, uh, I don't think that, uh, it's very unfair for you to compare your kids to each other. And I think parents do that a lot. I know my parents hurt my brother because I, since I was called to preach as a young, a young kid, my entire life, I was like the angel. Never, never did do any, I never got in trouble. Never, never was with a girl, never got drunk. Uh, uh, none of that stuff. And uh, my brother rebelled very much because he was constantly told, why don't you be like your brother? And uh, so for a long time, I think he about hated me. Just plumb wrong to do that. So I don't have a good book for you to read, but I'd be careful with that one. Next question, last one. Is regeneration and the new te- and the and the new birth uh, only a New Testament teaching? By the way, I need to remember one thing y'all hadn't asked me about. Uh, you know, that's a hard way, to, uh, a hard thing to answer. Uh, yes, but it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. My devotions this morning. If you're on my email list from AustinGardner.net, tomorrow you'll find out Jesus said, uh, "If you believed Moses, you'd have believed me, because Moses spoke of me." So did you know that when Moses was writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he's talking about Jesus? That is a wild thought. Moses spoke about me. And so when you're reading about the creation, Jesus is in there. And when you're reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and and when you're reading about Egypt, and when you're reading about all the sacrifices, Moses was talking about Jesus in all kinds of ways. I'm I'm sure we get to heaven. He's going to show us how Jesus is just everywhere, all over the Bible. And we're going to find him all over the Bible. So uh, I'm going to tell you that, yes, in the Old Testament, we kind of see it foreshadowed. But the new birth and being born again and all that is really found in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament. Okay, is that it, Micah? Okay. One question nobody asked, and uh, maybe you've got discouraged about asking, is about what's going to happen with the church plant. So let me give you an update on that, and we will... Sing. Well, this is an awkward time. A message I need to have about 30 minutes for, and it's 15 till. Uh, well, I may drag this one out on the new church. Uh, not really. I won't do that to you. Uh, I really need you to be praying over the next week or so. The pastor of the church that some of you would know about, but we're on the Internet and I won't speak, will be talking to his men, Lord willing, and asking them if Vision can send a team to take leadership inside of 285 there's a building that's on an acre and a half. It has an auditorium. It'll seat uh, 
um, 250, 250. So it's only an acre and a half. I thought it was three acres. It's grandfathered in. Uh, there, it's going to be in, in a very good shape financially. And uh, he should be talking to them. And by the time I get back from Chile, I should be able to sit down with him. And so, Lord willing, uh, January the 1st, his plan is that we will be uh, taking over leadership of that church. And so instead of starting a church with no building, being in the same situation we are here, this is a church that's very greatly struggling. Uh, uh, has very few people that would be attending faithfully. There are, it's a, they got a pretty good Spanish crowd that attends, but they have very few uh, Anglo's, uh, uh, white folks, gringos, uh, and uh, it's right in the heart of everything you can imagine. On one side of the road, it's just full of uh, it's full of uh, uh, Latin Americans that need the gospel, and on the other side of the road, there's uh, yuppies, and on the other side of the road, there's African Americans, and on the other side of the road, there's Koreans. It is a completely international community, and so by God's grace, if that happens, that's where we'll be starting uh, to work. And it will put me and uh, the staff under a, a pretty big strain. So we'll be asking you to help step it up until God gives us somebody. It has always been my practice never to start any work until I have a man. But every time, uh, every time we've thought of somebody that might work here in America and help us start churches here in America, they always end up going. Uh, they always end up going to the mission field. Uh, just recently, you didn't know it, but we had we had a family here just a few weeks ago, and they came. To, to meet with me and talk with me about becoming the pastor of the new church we'd start. And so we were sitting and we, we spent hours together and uh, talking. And, and I told him he'd have to stay at the church here for a couple of years and really be a, have the heart of uh, vision and understand who we are and what we're doing. And so he looked at me and he said, well, if you were my age, what would you do? I said, well, I'd go to the mission field. That's what I'd do. And he said, uh, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, I've not thought of that. I said, well, you all think about it. But, hey, I'd love to have you come help me start that church. But uh, he said... Uh, Okay, so the other day he wrote me a letter and says, uh, looks like we're going to go to Argentina. So I lost that guy to Argentina. Uh, so, <laughs> but if I were his age, I would head back to the mission field. So you pray that God would work out things so that we can get a church going in, uh, uh, inside of Atlanta uh, and uh, reach out to some people. It would be a fantastic privilege. Let's sing one song, and I'm going to read a verse and say a few things that will be dismissed. All right? Stand with me. We're going to sing together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.
let me just share a couple things with you. We'll be through before seven o'clock. Uh, I, I would like to beg you to pray. I really believe God wants us to start lots of churches and lots of places and to see uh, lots of people influenced for the gospel. And that means we need to raise up people here in our church. And so Christmas on the north side, for example, serves a big purpose. And you're going out and getting somebody new and getting them saved. And then let's bring them up and shepherding them and teaching them and discipling them and running them through foundations so that they can become uh, spiritual leaders and so that they can go start churches. Uh, I believe... That though Vision's not a big church, Vision doesn't have great numbers, we don't have a 300 and we don't have a beautiful building, I believe our church is unique. And if you go here, you probably assume or believe some of that yourself. There are now uh, 18 missionaries out of the church. Uh, that we, we, we give an unreal amount of money. This morning, by the way, you gave $444.40 uh, uh, in the offering, which blew my mind. I told him, I said, you can come, but if you, if you get 50 bucks in the offering, I will be shocked. And uh, uh, so uh, they came. I told him that I didn't think so. He t- and David Judd, who's visited our church several times, he said, well, it was real convenient that the message was on giving right before and I said, well, you know that it wasn't convenient. He said, oh, I know. He said, but it sure was not. I said, well, if you'd have come next week, I'd have been on Second Corinthians chapter 10, and it wouldn't have helped you a bit. And so uh, 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 I, I thank you for being a given church. I thank you for helping with the missionaries and being kind to the missionaries and, and doing the ministries here. We need more churches that have this heart, uh, that are just Bible-preaching churches that just go from verse to verse. I'm an independent Baptist. But I'm often bothered by some of the ways that we, uh, the, we have done things in the past. And so I hope you'll really pray about that and that you'll really get a heart for it. I'm going to not preach the message. I am going to read you some of the, the stuff here that I, I'm going to read you some little sayings I got ready for the service. And then uh, uh, you'll get the rest of Second Corinthians. Let me give you one. Here's Francis Bacon saying about money. Money is like manure. You like the way that started? Of very little use unless it is spread. Money is like manure, of very little use unless it is spread. And uh, so, you know, one of God's purposes for your money is that it be spread around and not hoarded. That's not him, that's me. Uh, I would say to you, I was just reading uh, uh, this week when I had the scan. They wouldn't let me read, so I had to listen. They said I could listen to something. I had to sit still for an hour to this medicine to get all through my body. And I had to listen. So I was listening once again to uh, Charles Spurgeon's um, uh, life story. And Charles Spurgeon earned a salary of 20,000 pounds, between 20,000 pounds and 30,000 pounds. So that you know what that means, that was enough. 30,000 pounds is what it cost to build the tabernacle that seated like 4,000 people. And downstairs had Sunday school rooms of 900, capacity of 900, and uh, then other rooms. It was only a $30,000 building. And he, uh, his income was between twenty dollars and $30,000 for years. Uh, that he made that income. And when he died, he had very little money left. He didn't keep any of it. In fact, as many of the missionaries that you have read about in books like Hudson Taylor, uh, 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 those guys, they knew, they knew uh, in George Mueller's children's home, it was Spurgeon personally preaching around and getting all the money and then sending large amounts of money to them. So I hope that you have learned something about giving and you realize that's the important uh, thing about what you do with money. You have been listening to Austin Gardner, pastor of Vision Baptist Church. For contact information, location, service times, 
or more audio and video recordings, log on to www.visionbaptist.com.